Times Like Now is an interview program, interviews with interesting people that are doing cool stuff. And my name is Trevor Collins. On today's episode, I'm speaking with Aaron Brown. He is from the Portland, Oregon organization called No More Freeways, and they are working to stop an ODOT-planned expansion of the highway and freeway system in Portland, Oregon, on this episode of Times Like Now. Hello, Aaron. Thank you for joining me today on the program. Um, introduce yourself. Tell me a little bit about uh, No More Freeways. Sure. So my name is Aaron, uh, and for the last four years, uh, I've been working in a volunteer capacity uh, with a bunch of rabble-rousers who think that freeways are a terrible investment in the 21st century. Uh, we were founded in 2017 primarily to uh, challenge ODAT's plans to uh, widen Interstate 5 uh, between the Fremont Bridge, the 405, and I-84 through the Rose Quarter. They've been calling it the Rose Quarter Freeway Expansion. Uh, and our community uh, opposition has been uh, focused on a handful of different things. One, uh, there isn't a single freeway expansion anywhere in North America that has ever solved traffic congestion due to a concept of induced demand, and we can talk about that a little bit more later. Second, uh, air pollution in the neighborhood is already abysmal, and the uh, freeway, they are planning on widening it even farther into the backyard of Harriet Tubman Middle School, which is immediately adjacent to the highway. Um, third, 40% of Oregon's carbon emissions come from transportation. It's the only source of Oregon's carbon emissions that are going up, and we don't really have a plan to stop it. And if we want to be addressing this, then uh, our carbon emissions, then we need to be investing in alternatives to driving, including transit, biking, walking, passenger rail, all sorts of investments uh, and even just basic road maintenance would be, you know, better in terms of providing, fixing what we currently have. Um, and just all of those things together uh, come from the general conclusion of we should be investing in the green new deal and not the gray old deal and spending billions of dollars in freeways. And the cost has continued to escalate um, to widen a freeway when instead we could be investing in alternatives uh, feels like the wrong move. And, um, so we've, we've mainly been organizing around the Rose Quarter, which has all sorts of thorny specific politics related to uh, the fact that this freeway was built through what was at the time the largest black neighborhood in the state of Oregon, completely decimated the neighborhood. ODOT took and did not reimburse families for taking 300 some houses through this neighborhood. Um, and now there's efforts to, to, uh, uh, heal and restore the neighborhood. There's an organization called the Albina Vision Trust that's sort of navigating, you know, how to how to challenge ODOT on the freeway while also getting, you know, caps over the freeway. Um, and No More Freeways has been working closely with them in terms of, uh, you know, coordinating what it looks like for us to be, um, you know, supporting good stuff in the neighborhood that and, and while fighting the extra lanes of freeway. Um, and our efforts are also going across the region as well, the Portland region. So, you know, this is not the only freeway expansion that ODOT has lined up. ODOT is also proposing to widen I-205 down in uh, over the Willamette in, in Oregon City. There's an attempt to, uh, the proposal to widen uh, the interstate bridge across across the Columbia from Portland to Vancouver. They're calling it a bridge replacement, but it is in fact a five mile, uh, 10 lane freeway expansion that'll probably cost somewhere around $5 billion. Um, there's plans to add extra lanes to 217 in Washington County. And then there's plans to widen the bridge over, um, I-5 down near Wilsonville, the, the Boone bridge on I-5. So long story short, there's a lot of massive projects and 
it's easiest to think of it as that there's a freeway industrial complex. And I'm using the term in direct homage to how Angela Davis talked about a prison industrial complex, right? And we believe that this infrastructure is polluting, that it's unhealthy, that it's counterproductive, and that that money would be better spent on other transportation infrastructure that actually makes our lives healthier and, and less time stuck in traffic. Right, exactly, Aaron. And I've I've been kind of heads up on this on this idea for some time. And I recently did a, a interview with uh, Brad Perkins of the Cascadia uh, High Speed Rail Project. That's I'm not sure if you're aware of that, but there is a, a fairly well organized uh, uh, push to have high speed rail coming out of Portland area and all the way up to Vancouver, BC. And I know that he's been knocking on these doors upon ODOT and PDOT for going on 15 years trying to get his project and this project up to high-speed rail uh, off of the uh, proverbial ground. <clears throat> and I wish you all luck because ODOT obviously is the, the monster in the room that seems to be uh, uh, trying to keep this, as you said, complex, uh, keep it going. What was the cost on this highway expansion and where is that money supposed to come from? So uh, this. This expansion has been in the books for a while, but it wasn't until uh, 2017 that the state government passed, the state legislature passed House Bill 2017, which was the bipartisan $5 billion transportation measure. And it included a significant amount of money uh, for the Rose Quarter, about $400 million. And the, the original cost of the project was listed as $450 million. Um, then it suddenly went up to $800 million and now it's being listed at like $1.2 billion. And actually just this morning, I saw an announcement that at the next Oregon transportation commission meeting, they are planning on um, uh, uh, coming up with the next cost refinement uh, of saying how much more it's going to cost. So uh, these projects are very expensive. They're very difficult to build and they're very difficult to keep on, on target for cost. And as community groups are, demonstrably stepping up and saying like, you know, Hey, well, if you're doing this, you need to mitigate against this concern. Uh, just only adds more and more costs. And the thing is, is that the, the, the proposed expansion is so expensive because of how wide they are proposing it. If you were to keep the freeway at the existing width while also investing in the, in the covers so that Albina vision could reconnect the neighborhood, those covers would be cheaper to build. They'd be easier to engineer and we would be spending more money on making the neighborhood whole than on adding more lanes. And every additional foot wide that that freeway is below the caps that they're building exponentially increases the costs just by the inherent geometry of, of construction. If you have a big empty space below ground and trying to build stuff on top of it, it just gets a lot more expensive. Right, right. And and I know these expenses always always manage to to go up a great deal. And um, but. What is your, I guess, your background in how did you get into this organization? You said you're co-founder. Uh, when did you and how did you start this organization? How many people in your organization as well? You've had some time to be growing. What's been the response in the Portland community? That was a lot of questions, I guess, but a, a little bit about yeah, yourself. Yeah, so first I'll just say, I mean, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I grew up in Portland and, uh, went to college, came back and I thought I really wanted to be an urban planner. I thought I was really interested in, in, you know, the questions of how you 
you know, build what your community looks like? And um, I'm still interested in those questions, but in my early days of thinking about being an urban planner, I realized I cared, you know, planning in of itself is a very, like, it's a technocratic field. Like what really matters is the political questions of what gets built and who's brought to the table in the first place. And that that's not a planning question. That's a political question. That's a question of power. That's a question of community organizing. That's a question of, you know, politics says, well, what are, what are our values? And then planning says how to implement them. Right. And so Currently, across America, like the politics are, well, we just need to build more roads and we need to widen freeways. And then planning sort of responds to that. Whereas I want to challenge that at at the core that says we don't need more roads. We need more transit. We need more sidewalks. We need to fix the roads we currently have. We need more bike lanes. We need the buses to run every five minutes and we need them to never be stuck in traffic. We need to be cleaning up, you know, uh, air pollution by by uh, dramatically electrifying all of our cars. Right. And so um, I, I've, my career's kind of been bouncing between these two fields of, of planning and politics. So like I was, I was board president of Oregon Walks, the pedestrian advocacy organization for four years back earlier in the 2010s, like 2013 through 2017. And, you know, I would go to these awful uh, vigils for these traffic fatalities, right? Like some poor, some poor little old lady was trying to cross the street that didn't have sidewalks and the cars were going 40 miles an hour. Um, They're just the most depressing events you could ever go to in your life. And when you realize that, wow, like all of these fatalities keep happening on ODOT's arterials, like ODOT owns all of these roads across the Portland region that are super dangerous. 82nd Avenue, TV Highway, McLaughlin, Powell, Barber, you'd recognize them. You recognize them when you're on them because there are these, we call them orphan highways because ODOT owns the roads but instead of investing in fixing them and, and so ODOT owned these roads. And then over the last 50 years, the community grew around it, right? Like these used to be just like farm to high, farm to town highways, farm to market highways. Right. And now there's a bunch of neighborhoods and these neighborhoods often are full of low income communities of color that are unfortunately situated right next to these busy streets that are super dangerous. So going to all these vigils and realizing, man, you know, it costs, $60,000 to put in a crosswalk here that was a really nice one or a, a rapid flashing beacon or something to get the cars to slow down. And ODOT doesn't have the money for that because they're spending all that money on freeways. Um, you know, it just gave me a really specific sense of where all of our transportation money was going and how uh, that certainly wasn't my priorities and how we, you know, that experience of watching how ODOT as an institution just did not play well with local jurisdictions and did not play well with you know, our, our big picture goals of providing walkable communities where people, it's safe for people to walk their kids to school. Um, you know, that coupled with my general anxiety around climate and understanding that like, if we're serious about doing something on climate, we have to be spending our time investing in alternatives to driving. There is no iteration of a world in which we will hit our carbon emission goals by continuing to drive so much. And I know there's plenty of people, I mean, if, you know, if this is on the radio right now, there's probably people listening to this while driving and people are like, well, I like driving. I'm like, look, I'm not telling you, you can't drive. I'm saying that like, we should be building communities so that you have other options, right? Certain trips you will need a car for other trips. And ideally as soon as possible, we're providing an opportunity for you to buy an affordable electric vehicle. But you know, there are certain trips that it'd be great if you took a bus, if it was available. And furthermore, One in three Oregonians can't or don't drive due to age, due to disability, due to income, due to preference. 
And uh, what does it mean for all of those folks that we spend all of this money on infrastructure that doesn't actually serve their needs? So, um, you know, I, I'm somebody that's, you know, professionally worked as a political consultant and I, I understand some of the dynamics of how to work with media, of how to, how to build a campaign, how to, you know, uh, how to do community organizing. And so we had our first event in September of 2017, where we, the city of Portland was ad- uh, adopting their comprehensive plan. And, you know, we didn't expect the city of Portland at that moment to just take out support for the Rose Quarter uh, at that meeting. But we organized a lot for it and we got a bunch of turnout and we got the media to pay attention to it. And in that process, we just continued to build more and more support. So we, you know, had events and we asked people to come through and we collected volunteers and we, um, you know, we spent a lot of time reaching out to other community groups that are relevant, right? So groups like Neighbors for Clean Air, the Audubon Society, you know, the bicycle and transportation and, and, and pedestrian advocacy groups. You know, we spoke to all of them about why this project was terrible and in 2019, during the environmental, uh, during the public comment period, we got thousands of comments, 91% of them opposed to the project into the public record, just to show like ODOT exactly like this project is deeply disliked. So um, yeah. I spoke a little well, bit about you, how I got yeah, involved with it. And the second question that. was and like how, how we've been ODOT growing a bit. Responding yeah, you, you to all of that. this. Good. I mean, how are they just ODOT? still... Is this still gung ho going forward, or is there any um, any response from them? So ODOT uh, is continuing to find ways to pretend that they're addressing our concerns without addressing them, right? So ODOT's like, oh, we've gotten so much public comment, but they don't tell it that like every single public comment is saying study alternatives to freeway expansion, like do congestion pricing first, fix the Albina neighborhood, tear out the freeway instead of building, widening it. Right. Um, and you know, ODOT is, uh, because this is happening in a, you know, historically black neighborhood, ODOT's response is to claim that it's restorative justice. If we hire a bunch of black folks to build the freeway, regardless of what the impacts to the community are. And to be clear, like ODOT, it's great that ODOT's starting to get serious about, minority contracting and bringing black and brown folks in to get the jobs from, you know, like there's real wealth creation that comes from that. Um, But, you know, if freeway expansion in black and brown neighborhoods is the cardinal original sin of 20th century urban planning, restorative justice would be ameliorating the impacts from that freeway, not widening it. Right. Um, So ODOT's done some very, very cynical stuff um, and pitting, you know, black contractors against some of the black restorative justice groups and some of our environmentalists and some of our folks as if like environmental justice and economic justice are somehow separate things, right? Like we've had some very difficult run-ins with, you know, some of the laborers and folks that are like excited for the jobs right now. And, you know, we're, we're still in largely in disagreement, but there's, there's a recognition overall that ODOT is deliberately pitting us against each other as opposed to what would it look like to build infrastructure that meets both of our right. economic and, and I mean, our environment. What would it look like goals, if right? everybody was working so, together? I mean, uh, there and, are, as, as we've mentioned, so many alternatives to this. I mean, I, I know Portland is going through some growing pains at the moment, uh, the population growth, and that needs to be addressed. But as, as you said, this is not uh, the most economical or environmental or just common sense way of going about it. There are other alternatives that other cities, not only in America, but around Europe have done trains, uh, bicycles, et cetera, et cetera. 
Yeah. And, and to your point about growth, right? Like if you think Portland's congestion is bad now, and we know that people are going to keep moving here, especially as the climate crisis gets worse. And the Pacific Northwest is one of the few places that people feel relatively safe in, especially as the rest of the country, God knows what's happening in the red States and what, what's the future of our democracy is right now. How many folks are like, I'm getting out of this red state. I want to be able to be certain I have reproductive choice and options if, if things happen, right? Like people are going to be moving to the Pacific Northwest. And if every single one of them brings their automobile and expects to be able to drive every single trip, there isn't enough room. We cannot build the freeways wide enough for every one of those trips. We need people to come like just the, it's an inherent, it's a geometric, geometric problem, right? Like it's a lot more space resourceful to move 60 people on two buses and not on 50 cars, right? Think about how much space those 50 cars yes. take, how much space in the parking lots. You know, it changes the housing that we build. The housing we build has to be more expensive if we have to include all this extra parking. You know, we need to be building dense, walkable neighborhoods filled with abundant and affordable housing connected by frequent and reliable transit. And spending billions on freeway expansions is the exact opposite of that goal. And that goal is what gets us more housing affordability. It's what gets us more uh, addressing the climate crisis. It reduces air pollution and it provides options. It's reliable, right? Like it's also about guaranteeing that people will be able to get to work no, in a certain I'm, amount I'm of time and never be stuck in traffic. One day the, uh, the term is not green building. The term will just be building. I keep waiting for that. Uh, looking at San Francisco, for instance, or for their BART system, their train system, and the numbers of people that they move, the numbers of jobs that were created, the numbers of uh, the money that is created by the BART ticketing system, and on and on and on. That BART system is a great model that's been successful for 50 years at least, as well as the 100-year high-speed rail uh, experience in Japan and in Europe. Uh, the UK is expanding their high-speed rail right now. It's just a common sense solution to these problems. And yeah, I'm, I'm with you and uh, commend you on what you're doing. Um, where would people find more information about your organization? Uh, so our organization's website is uh, www.nomorefreewayspdx.com. Uh, and we're also on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook at No More Freeways. So, um, and, and just to your point as well, right? Like, you know, American government right now, uh, they just, Biden's infrastructure bill that was recently signed, you know, it, there's a lot of good money that's going to some Amtrak and some transit. It's the biggest transit investment from the federal government in our lifetimes. But there's still a lot of money that's going to go that state DOTs, the departments of transportation uh, across the country, have a bit of discretion on what they want to spend it on. And so it's going to be incumbent on groups, you know, and coalitions like ours across the country to go to each of their individual state DOTs and suggest alternatives become, because, you know, across what ODOT is doing is not actually that unique for America in terms of every state has a department of transportation that was founded originally just to build roads and the engineers at the top and the culture within the organization and sort of like what their, what their technical expertise are. Like these are, you know, these are institutions that do not propose roads and pass, but I mean, you know, there's exceptions, but by and large, you know, in Texas, there's these massive freeway expansions in El Paso and, and Austin and Houston being proposed. The one in Houston would displace 1100 people to add another two to three lanes to a like highway that's already 12 lanes wow. wide, something like, outrageous like that. Right. 
Um, and so you're seeing these emerging coalitions where, you know, the climate energy and, and, you know, historically environmentalism has been about like, you know, Oh, uh, protecting my suburban backyard and the birds that are in the backyard of it. Right. And it's like, well, you know, environmentalism in the 21st century means finding ways to get people to live in dense housing and get people to be taking transit more often. And you, there is, you know, it's fine if you have a car, but you can't take the car for every single trip. Right. And like, it's fine if you live in a detached single house, but like, we want to address the housing crisis and we want people to have more energy efficient houses. We have to live in apartments and stuff like that. Right. Um, and so there's an emerging environmental movement that's really connecting to this stuff as well. And there's obviously massive racial justice, social justice questions. If it was up to me, you'd tear out all of the freeways and you'd give the land back to all the black and brown communities that were displaced in the first place. What happened here in Portland happened in every city across America. St. Paul, Minnesota, they built the freeway and it displaced one in seven black Minnesotans, the entire state, right? I mean, the, these projects were deliberately targeted uh, in these communities. And if we're serious about restorative justice and reparations, those communities should have first dibs at what has now become some of the most valuable land in the country, right? Like, think about all of the real estate of I-5 in downtown, inner north, northeast Portland. Like, if those black families still had those 400 houses, each of those houses would be worth $700,000, right? I mean, like, think about what a house on Mississippi and Williams goes for right now, right? So, um, and this is, again, true across the country that, you know, as urban, as cities have changed and urban real estate's really valuable right now, we should be finding ways to create wealth by giving the land back to the folks that were displaced in the first place. And I think that uh, our 21st century reckoning with freeways is a really, in, especially urban freeways, is a really interesting moment to to ask ourselves, what injustices have we perpetuated in the name of suburban sprawl and freeway expansion? And what does it look like for us to be uh, giving those groups first dibs on what they want to do with the land in return? I mean, you could picture these linear neighborhoods that would have a transit line going through it and dense housing and no cars whatsoever and parks and libraries, right? Like that's within our grasp. If only the state DOTs would get out of our way. And unfortunately the freeway industrial complex is very, very powerful and has bipartisan support. So we have to like find ways to, to uh, build power to challenge that. And that's what we're doing here locally with no more freeways. Uh, there's a group stop text dot I 45 in Houston uh, there's a group rethink I-94 in the Twin Cities. You know well, these efforts are, you, are starting are to working, percolate, and uh, it's, it's incumbent on us. With any, I mean, are you writing legislation? Are you preparing anything to take to the state or the city? Um. So, uh, stay tuned. Is I guess the answer that we have. I would say that like there's some new legislative champions that. Uh, uh, the good news is that they're totally on our side. They're, they're worried about climate. They're, they've seen all the ways that we've caught ODOT deliberately lying about traffic projections. Um, and um, the problem is that they're not in the positions of power at the top of the transportation committees, or they're not at the top of, you know, uh, you know, they don't have the seniority to push for this stuff. However, um, there's enough of the younger folks that are coming up that they're starting to organize and, and challenge and say, okay, we need to be investing in these alternatives instead. Like I mentioned TV highway out in Washington County, 40% of all of Washington County's traffic fatalities happen on this one street. And this one street is owned by ODOT. And it's because the, the road's super wide. There's not very many crosswalks. The cars are traveling at 70 miles an hour and you've got a bunch of low income folks that are trying to catch a bus. So them and their kids are like 
running across a busy road with a, you know, 30 seconds on the crosswalk. It's like, well, this is a recipe for disaster, right? Um, so you were talking about legislation. I'll say that in Colorado, actually, this week, there is a bill coming forward that would say that every freeway project has to be evaluated by its, you know, its impact on if it's increasing driving and encouraging driving and what the carbon impact emissions would be. And it looks likely to pass, but it hasn't passed yet. Um, and some of the suburban just districts are furious. They're like, oh, but I want my big road project. We, we got to build roads. And it's like, well, this is the moment where we should just start, you know, this is a big ship changing how our cities are shaped. doesn't happen overnight, but you got to kind of stop. You got to stop doing the bad stuff and start doing the good stuff. So for every, the 21st century is just as much, you know, about as many wind turbines and solar panels that you build as it is the coal plants that you retire. And so we have to stop widening freeways and direct that money into the good stuff. And I think you'll see here in Oregon in the upcoming years, an increased legislative um, effort. Last year, there was a bill that passed that gave ODOT more money for some of these roads. And we heckled quite a bit. We, we, upset some of the legislators by how directly we were bringing, you know, uh, climate justice leaders. And, and uh, it really ruffled some feathers, but it also got the attention that like, okay, this is a problem. And moving forward, we're going to have to do something different about this. Um, and, you know, I haven't mentioned anything about it on this call lately, but one of the best things that we've done in the last couple of years is we've been working with Sunrise PDX, the local chapter of the Sunrise Movement here in Portland. Um, and, at this point, we have teenagers that have been hosting a climate strike outside the Oregon Department of Transportation every other week since April. You know, these are these are youth that were built that were born in two thousand five, right? They're so young, and and they get it. They they're terrified of the climate crisis. It was one hundred and sixteen degrees this summer, right? And these young folks have the moral clarity of understanding that, like, if we're going to do something about climate, we have to dramatically change everything about how we structure our society. And the extent to which they've learned how transportation works and are providing, you know, the the unobjectionable, like, please save my future ask and ODOT is continuing to ignore them is really getting a lot of attention of local policymakers as well. So we've been doing a lot to really raise attention to this issue because people typically don't think of the um, as, you know, ODOT as like the climate villain, the way that they think of pipelines and the way that they think of landfills and they think of, you know, oil terminals. And, you know, it's through collective action and organizing that we raise that attention. So we are in the process of changing the legislative calculus, and that requires building relationships with elected officials. It also requires getting in the newspapers a lot to make this all the more pertinent that elected officials are hearing from the constituents. And it does move very, very slowly, as we know. But uh, I do commend you for what you're doing and all the organization that you and your group are doing. In the last couple minutes that we have, are you aware of Frog Ferry? Yeah. Yeah. The, I saw that you had interviewed them previously. Oh, uh, and I, I have some thoughts them. about Frog Ferry. What do you Ferry? think? Because <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just learning about them myself. And so, uh, so please. Yeah. So let me first say I live in the St. John's neighborhood, uh, which means that I would be a fairly short walk. 15 minute walk to where the ferry would stop. And then I could take a, bu- I could take a boat from the St. North Portland neighborhood of St. John's all the way down to downtown. That sounds amazing. And I hope it gets built and I'm excited about it. However, I'm also just going to suggest that 
as cool of a project as it is, and I think it's it's a good investment for the city aggregate, a lot of their funding right now is coming from ODOT and from other transportation-related funding that should be going into fixing sidewalks and crosswalks where people are you know getting hit and killed by cars. This is not actually a transportation investment. They're talking about, I mean, they're, they're building it as such, but if you really wanted to increase connectivity between Portland and Vancouver or Portland and St. John's, run the bus more frequently. Like the bus is actually more cost efficient. It actually is serving working class folks. You can run it at all times of the day or just make that bus more efficient by putting extra bus That's lanes a, in. So those buses that don't is get a valid stuck in point, traffic. Aaron. I got to run um, right now. Um, you, one more time. What's the website? Uh, www.nomorefreewayspdx. And I, I'm supportive of Frog Ferry. I just, there's better, we need to make sure that we are uh, addressing our priority needs first. No, understand. We uh, take uh, many angles at the same problems. Thank you again, Aaron, for your time. Appreciate it. All right. Take care. Past episodes can be heard wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you to the letter J, Cody Robertson, for original music. My name is Trevor, and I can be reached Trevor at timeslikenow.com. I look forward to speaking with you next time.